Welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. With the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the bailout of Credit Suisse, it's beginning to feel a lot like 2008 again. This week, I'm talking to political economist Mark Blythe to try and make sense of the current state of the global economy. Mark is the director of the William R. Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and the author of several books, including Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea and Agronomics with Eric Lonergan. And I began by asking him a random upfront question. Okay, number four is who or what makes you laugh? Oh, so many things. Um, I think the thing that I laugh at the most is actually my daughter. She's hilarious. She's managed to take whatever bits of humour I have and weaponize them in a way that is totally unusual for an 11-year-old. I expect her to basically destroy many lives in the course of her career. Yeah, I have two 12-year-olds at home. Oh my God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, okay, let's talk about what I need to talk to you about. I- in the Ladybird version. So this all started in Silicon Valley. It did. Right, but let me take you back to an even better way of thinking about this, right? Between 1945 and 1974, there were no banking crises. None. Zero. Starting in 1974, we basically allowed banks to do all the stuff that we didn't allow them to do for a very long time. Lever themselves up, invent secondary futures markets, derivatives, all the rest of it. And periodically, in, with increasing frequency and increasing lethality, they blow up and get bailed out. So I think it's important to have that background in here that like, we can start saying, okay, this happened in Silicon Bank, but this is just generic. This is what happens when you have a globally integrated, massively over-levered banking system. It just blows up all the time. But they told us it was never going to happen again, Mark. Oh, yeah. They also told us we had all this stuff called living wills and resolution mechanisms, and we know what to do. And the minute it actually hits the proverbial fan, all of that goes out the window, and they just blanketly guarantee everybody's deposits. Now, why is it they do this? Because every crisis is different. uh, Because, uh, no, really they did this because they're trying to avoid a panic. At the end of the day, this all this is. And this time, it's different in one respect. Social media and the type of depositors you have in these institutions, particularly Silicon Valley Bank, who are smart enough to be informed depositors, who recognize that they're taking massive unrealized losses on their bond book, and they get nervous, they start to tell each other they're getting nervous, and you get a classic bank run. Yeah, I see. I know you've said before that you basically get to run an extortion racket on the taxpayer once you mention the word systemic risk. That's exactly it. And this time they managed to do it with a bank that was only the 16th biggest bank. I mean, it was the case that you're meant to be at least in the top 10 before you were systemically important. Now you're down to number 16. And then you've got the other one that people are worrying about, uh, this New Republic. Is New Republic Star Wars or the name of a bank? I can never remember. But some other bank for wealthy people, essentially, that has exactly the same problem in that they've got unrecognized losses on these uh, bonds which from an accounting point of view doesn't matter because you're going to hold the bonds to maturity, but from a confidence point of view basically says, I need to get my deposits out of there. And when you basically take the deposits out, you've got too many liabilities relative to your assets, and that's when people start to get nervous about the bank and you get the same self-fulfilling prophecy again. It all goes to leverage. At the end of the day, it's basically these things are massively over-levered. For every $50 out there in loans, they've got $2 in the bank, and that's considered prudential. 
But was that not the opposite of the case? Or explain to me the, the Silicon Valley Bank. They had huge amounts on deposit there because of the nature of the business they were doing. Oh, absolutely. But the problem was people started to move those deposits out. And if you don't match the deposits to your liabilities, you're in trouble. So the more that they moved them out, the more that people worried about the unrecognized losses. Now, were these losses real losses? No, because you're going to hold these bonds until they mature. But that doesn't matter. What matters is the psychology. If people have decided that your financial system, is your, your bank is unsound, it's unsound. Okay, so how much has this cost the US Fed at this point? Well, it depends who you ask. Um, if you ask the Fed, nothing. Because essentially the, the bail-in was 100% successful. Okay, maybe it's $110 billion. Maybe it's $160 billion. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows at this point in time exactly how much it costs. And it depends on whether it ricochets forward. right? What's the big worry now is the, the nature of deposits have changed. It's not the case that it's mom and pop and grandma, and then if you give a $250,000 guarantee, everybody's savings account's there. You're worried about businesses. You're worried about people who do commercial banking. They have much larger deposits. And if they're not insured, then maybe they should go to a place that's systemically important. So you see this flight out of deposits in these banks and money mar into money market funds and into the very big banks. So when you're doing that, you're really impairing the ability of your mid-sized financial sector to lend to the real economy. And that's the knockout effect that they're rightly worried about. Okay. Just go back to basics again for me. Um, and again, talk to me like I am six and explain to me why did the the run begin basically at SVB, at Silicon Valley Bank? Well, as usual with these things, I mean, the problem with financial crisis is you're able to write new books about financial crises 70 years after the fact, because it just depends on the point of view that you take. You can always find one of the usual suspects and make them a bit more prominent and shake them. And then that becomes the new story. We're still having arguments about what caused the Great Depression. So in this case, it's no different. So the standard story is the following. You've got a bunch of highly sophisticated investors that are very close to the people who run the bank. The people who run the bank kind of forget to put a chief risk officer in place for seven months. And then when they do, they hire someone who apparently was last employed during the financial crisis. So you don't have a chief risk officer and a very obvious problem you're going to have is if you've got lots of government bonds in your portfolio, then if interest rates rise, those bonds lose value, right? So in a sense, you're making money on the upside of the new int the interest rates being higher, but you're losing value because the price of the bond goes down when the interest rate goes up. If these are marked to market, you had to sell them immediately, these guys would be in for a huge loss. So the people who are close, who are all networked, who are all in each other, talking to each other on WhatsApp or whatever the platform is, basically start to say, we should get our money out of here. And once they start to do it, they all start to do it. And because they're all networked through social media, you got the fastest bank run we've ever seen. They lost $48 billion in a matter of two days. $48 billion. I believe that was the number. Well, Exactly. So to me, the two really interesting things about this beyond the common or garden, whoops, there goes banking again, to quote Brittany Spears, the banking expert, is the speed of the run, the social media aspect of this and what that portells for the future. And then the, the secondary effects of this, of everyone who's got a large deposit, let's say you're on a construction firm and you're doing payroll and you have a million sitting around for payroll every, every month and you've got it in your local bank. Should you have it in your local bank? And everybody's sharing the same thoughts on social media. What happens if you get a run on the system? 
And this is what the government's struggling with over here. This is what Yellen, in particular, is struggling to come up with an answer for. Because do you really want to blanket guarantee everybody's deposit in every bank? Because if you are, you've just socialized the entire risk of the banking system. And that'd be a crazy thing to do, as any person in Ireland might suddenly... Yes, I believe that you've you've had one or two experiences with this over the years. I'm not sure it worked out that well. It's incredible how, and it's only been, what, 15 years? Yeah, exactly. I, I do a class here at Brown. I'm teaching it just now. It's called Money and Power in the International Economy. And I kid you not, before all this kicked off about four or five weeks ago, I gave the, an essay to the students. And one of the essay topics was, is it the case that left to their own devices, banks will over-lever themselves and cause financial crises? Discuss. It, it's always there. Like, it's always there. It's just waiting to happen. And we pretend that we've got all these regulations in place or whatever. They're always, they're the classic French generals. They're fighting the last war. The other big issue then, of course, again, from uh, 08 and what we're watching out for now is contagion. Uh, tell me how what's happened in, in, this, in the U.S., is connected to what happened at Credit Suisse. So it's a great way of thinking about it, actually, Katie, because last time contagion was all about through the government bond market, right? Essentially, Greece is a tiny bit of my bank's massive portfolio, but it's pretty much gone to zero. To avoid taking a loss, I need to sell the next thing so I can cover my Greek loss. Everybody thinks the same way. You sell Portugal. Suddenly Portugal's in trouble, I need to sell Ireland, right? And then we get the pigs and all the rest of it, right? That was contagion last time. Contagion this time is what I was talking about earlier. If I'm running a mid-sized construction firm somewhere in the Midwest of America and I'm looking at Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and all this sort of stuff, it's so remote to me, but I've got all these social media feeds and all these people in the media and everything saying, yeah, but this time it's different. You go, why is it different? Well, you know, you've got a million and a half sitting there on payroll. What happens if it's a bank run? Because you're not guaranteed. Oh, maybe I should put my stuff in a money market fund. Maybe I should put it in JP Morgan because they'll never let those guys fail. And the contagion this time is basically draining liquidity from the small and mid-sized banks that are incredibly important for commercial lending in the US. I mean, ironically, the Fed has been trying to engineer a recession for the past 18 months to get rid of inflation. And it might have engineered not a, a recession, but an actual collapse if it's not careful. Uh, okay, give me another number between 1 and 20. We'll do another question. Okay, let's do number 8. I'm going to stick with my groups of 4. Oh, well, I actually know the answer to this. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, really? What did you think I wanted to be? What did I say at some other point? You were very definitive about this at many points, I feel, about wanting to be a rock star. Yes, exactly. Well, you can probably tell by the backdrop. Yeah, sorry. If you're not if you're not watching this, you should know there's a drum kit uh, and many there's a drum kit and a bunch bass. of guitars on the walls and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. So basically, yeah, I wanted to be uh, a bass player. I wanted to be a bass player in a rock band, and I did a lot of that, and it didn't quite work out. And I found another way of earning a crust, so it's all right. Uh, where did it all go wrong? Uh, that always reminds me of the George Best story. You know that one? It's the, it's so brilliant, isn't it? With George, where did it all go wrong? Uh, and in a way, mine is a very minor version of the George Best story. I mean, you know, I ended up an Ivy League professor and I've still got a music studio downstairs in my house. So it didn't really go that wrong, did it, at the end of the day? Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Back to Credit Suisse. Back to the hard stuff. Yes, um, go on then. Again, so Credit Suisse. Explain Credit Suisse to me then. I mean, that's obviously massively important 
institutions yes, in Swiss but banking. But also, also massively different, right? But this, yeah. is, this actually, this talks about contagion again in an interesting yeah. way, right? So think about it. You've got the Star Wars Bank, New Republic or First Republic, right? You've got the Silicon Valley Bank. They're different, but they're similar in the sense that they both have unusual types of depositors. Therefore, you have this weird kind of capital flight bank run risk, right? Credit Suisse has nothing to do with this, right? Credit Suisse has been in trouble for 10 years. Credit Suisse is basically just a firm that relied upon secrecy and dubious ways of earning money and was non-transparent in a market which basically over the past 10 years, at least with like interest rates on the floor, you're not going to make money from any of the types of wealth management plays or anything they did to make up for the loss of the businesses that you traditionally had, particularly before the crisis. So they've swapped management teams, they've promised to clean up, whatever. And at the end of the day, it's just a loss of confidence in this giant bank. Now, the interesting thing about it is kind of the shotgun marriage that happened to, you know, get the other big Swiss bank to pick this up. And what they did was there's a playbook out there that basically says, okay, there's a particular class of shares that are not shares, they're really bonds, and they turn into equity in a crisis, whatever. It's all very techy, right? They're called cocos. And these are meant to be like risk-absorbing things, whatever. All this stuff goes out the window. They're just like, forget it, right? Okay, how are we going to bribe this other bank to basically take in this on? Well, you have to guarantee the derivative book. Okay, how much is it? We don't know. Um, okay, what else do we have to do? You have to make sure that our shares don't go down. And that means that basically you're going to have to subsidize the shares on that side. Oh, okay, fair enough, we'll do that. What about all these cocoa bonds? They get wiped out. Oh, okay, fair enough, right, that's it. So once again, the playbook goes completely out of the window. Whence, you know, what's the old phrase again? And no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. I mean, that's exactly it, every time. Um, in terms of bringing it all back home to us here, um, because, you know, we talk, when you hear about bank collapses and bailouts, uh, I mean, obviously, people here it's only somewhat been the 50... redolent in ireland isn't it <laughs> indeed yes it does bring some people out in a cold sweat the bit i remember most from the irish banking crisis was when the tapes were released of the two guys talking about gambling on resurrection do you remember the that the anglo the anglo because tapes. i i had said i had said in many places you know this is what they're doing and a lot of people would push back at that time and you have no evidence of this and then those tapes came out and i was like hello there you go that's exactly what they're doing yeah, they were explosive. They really were. It was an extraordinary, incredible scoop, that story. But what was remarkable to me about Ireland was two things. One was you rebounded out of the crisis quite quickly, and that was because basically of American multinational investment and the growth in exports, right? It has nothing to do with the austerity policies and the fact that you're a very small economy with a lot of tech workers, right? So that that's fine. That's good, right? But it was the story, one side of it was the story you told yourselves. We were all guilty. We were all involved. We were either... We all parties. We all parties, right? And it always puzzled me why you wanted to tell yourselves that story, right? The second one was the government response, which was although you had to do all the austerity crap, you didn't do it in an evil and mindless way. You were very targeted. Like, I remember Stephen Kinsella telling me that the one thing they made sure there was toilet paper and the lights were on at all the Gaelic football venues, right? So all the community stuff that actually matters, right, continued. And I thought that was just incredibly smart. So you had this really interesting response where, like, it's almost as if society said, this problem's too big for anyone to actually just take the blame for. We're all going to take the blame for it, right? We're all guilty and therefore nobody's guilty. It's a bit like the Germans after World War II, only on a lesser crime. Yeah, well, I think you'll find, though, that many people did push back against that notion that we all parties and that that was actually a government line that was repeated back at them many times and not in a very uh, complimentary way. 
Excellent. So there was resistance. Cool. Yeah, and also I think you'll have some people questioning exactly how clever the uh, the management of of the austerity policies were. Right. I'm not saying didn't you do well, but it's always struck me that these two aspects of it, the like the collective guilt and then the let's not be utterly mindless in our austerity. I mean, if you think about what Britain did, I mean, Britain basically took its disabled population out and shot it for fun. I mean, you can be way worse than what Ireland did. But do you think that that exactly that, as you said there, that is that why we in Ireland have avoided but we haven't revised it totally, of course, that populism that has, you know, sprung up at the Trumpism in America, that that very right wing uh, populism in the UK, that that hasn't really taken root to any massive uh, mainstream political extent here. Um, there's a really good book by a political scientist called Sophia Barta, and it's called Into the Red. And she looks at basically the politics of, you know, all this stuff. And she's a really simple and smart way of thinking about this. If you compare Greece and Ireland, Something that sticks out is the following. They're both small economies, but one of them is unbelievably open to the international economy and the other one's really quite closed. And when you have quite closed economies, you can take the costs and shove the costs onto some other group in society. But if you're an open economy, you can't do that because international prices dictate your adjustment. So the fact that Ireland was so open meant that you couldn't pick a group and say, no, you're going to eat this one in a sense, you all had to eat it. And that made the response, in a sense, more balanced. And it also mitigated, I think, in the long run against the populist response. Because if you are Greece or Italy, and you basically shove all the costs onto that one group, or even the, you know, the Midwest Trumpers, right? That's the response you're going to get. But exactly back to that, the idea that it's completely predictable, and yet we seem to be not going there. Are you surprised at the, 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 how politically stable we appear to be here in comparison to maybe other jurisdictions, given that we had fairly comprehensive austerity for, you know, a, a long number of years. Yeah, I mean, but you also rocketed out of it because you got massive FDI flows. I mean, Aidan Reagan and uh, UCD has done great work on basically explaining what happened with Ireland. Um, so, you know, I think that that one's, you know, self-explanatory. I mean, if you basically have a huge crash, but suddenly your incomes start growing again, and the Dublin housing market goes on a tear again, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Dublin's 50% of Irish GDP. So once you bring that city back, you know, there may be massive distributional consequences for the rest of the country, but that's half of your GDP right there. So, you know, bringing that back solves a lot of problems in a sense. Um, in terms of everywhere else, I think that, you know, you know, the fact that we've kind of banished Trump from memory, we want to treat him as a kind of cartoon character, but it's not. It's 100% still there. In the entire Republican Party, if you look at DeSantis, there's, there's no recognisable Republican. They're all MAGA populist Republicans now. And that's half of what that country is. If you look at what's happening in Germany, nobody wants to talk about this because if you question anything about Ukraine, then you're a bad person and you should probably go to hell. But uh, half, one third of Germans are deeply sceptical of continuing to do armament and all the rest of it and would favour a rapprochement with Russia. And what does that mean? It means that the Greens are shrinking, the FTPs collapsed, and guess what? The AFD are rising again. And there's a, a woman on the left who's part of the left party, which they estimate if she broke off and did her own party, she would take large chunks of the disaffected SPD and the left, and she would have another 8 to 10% herself. So even in Germany, you still have the populist thing. So I think that we're kind of sleepwalking through this, saying, oh, that was then. 
And like you say, the reason is simple. We haven't done anything to address it. I mean, think about I like to think about it this way. Why is it why is it young people are obsessed with crypto? And the answer is dead simple, because my generation and the older people have all the real assets. This is all they have access to. Right? The bank of mum and dad is the only way that you can possibly have a flat in a major city. So if you're part of that 60% of the distribution that doesn't have a bank of mum and dad, you're kind of screwed. And is it any wonder that they're looking for, let's say, non-traditional political solutions, as well as being apathetic and dropping out completely? Uh, to be fair to you, you, you were um, very clear-eyed about austerity and the implications of it political implications you've just talked about there right from the start before that mm -hmm. was popular or profitable to say the least um, do you think that's dead now as an idea do you think it, that, 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 that that's an idea that won't come again we had that experiment yeah I think that the experiment really discredited it because now when even when German political parties talk about another round of austerity or the European semester or tightening up the rule book no one's taking it seriously because they know that the damage done was pretty catastrophic last time. I mean, Europe lost basically a decade of growth and particularly in, in the South. If you try and do that again, if the only thing that you're offering people is basically a shrinking economy and lesser and lesser life chances, while it's quite obvious that 20% of the, the world is doing incredibly well, that just becomes politically unsustainable. There's another way, however, that I think the game has changed this time around is that European societies are very serious about climate change. Right? America's totally in denial, and we're probably about to elect the GOP and go back on a huge carbon binge, but put that to one side. Europe's very serious about this stuff. And how you can have 1990s fiscal thinking and fiscal institutions at the heart of the EU when you need to do a multi-billion, multi-trillion euro build-out of green infrastructure is a really hard problem. And you find that even the Germans now are like, well, maybe we need to find a, an off-balance sheet solution. Like it's anything to keep up the pretense that you're not spending money when you know that you're about to spend an absolute ton of it. And that's, I think that's how the politics have changed. You can't do, do Osborne-level austerity and a green transition at the same time. That's just insanity. What about the other big international economic question right now, inflation? So, I'm, oddly enough, I'm writing a book on it. And it's called Inflation, a Guide for Users and Losers. Uh, because ultimately there are some people that use this as an excuse to push up profits. And there are people who lose really badly. But it's not the story where everybody loses. That's completely false. And a way of thinking about this is US corporate profits have never been higher. European corporate profits are doing pretty damn well as well. So it's absolutely true that, for example, that you can't start an inflation with price gouging because if a firm goes out and just raises its prices, its competitors will hammer them. But if everybody's facing inflated input costs and they raise prices, uh, let's raise them again. And then let's see how we're doing, right? So there's multiple causes to this. The notion that this is all just sort of like, well, the central bank spent too much. No, we don't even spend central bank money. We spend commercial bank money and they, they lend only if they think it's going to be profits, right? So there's all these confused stories about it. Short version, it was supply chains, COVID, and a war in Ukraine. And the war in Ukraine continues. Those effects are actually still dissipating. They may flare up again. The supply chain stuff is difficult because we don't know what China's going to do now next now that it's run by a Leninist. Didn't see that one coming. 
Um, and they shut down entire cities and all the rest of it. So, and you've also got climate change effects, right? Basically, things that used to be very stable are now unstable, and that suggests volatility in prices. So, are we going to go back to negative interest rates and very, very low inflation? No. Are we heading into the 1970s? No, absolutely not. It's totally different. So, where are we heading? Heading into a world whereby you're going to have basically around 3 to 4% inflation that's going to be hard to get rid of. Does that lead to a wage price spiral? Highly unlikely, because you've got no trade unions to actually go on strike at scale to force anybody's hands. Plus, you've got firms that use global supply chain, so the inputs come from multiple different places, all with different price profiles. So it's just, it's you know, it's not that way. It's not that 70s show anymore, right? It's just a totally different world. And I think that, you know, as climate change effects begin to take more hold on this, I mean, let's remember the last year, the Po Valley dried out. Italian agriculture went down by about 30%. America is a net agricultural exporter. It's one of the main reasons it's a superpower. All of that relies on the Colorado River. The Colorado River is basically 30% from being dead. It could, in my lifetime, literally dry up. At that point, nobody lives west of Colorado. So, you know, these are the things that I think that we really start to think about. You know, you shouldn't worry about a little supply shock causing a 5% inflation. These are not the droids you're looking for. You should be looking for the bigger tail risk coming down the line. Okay, just when I thought, oh, this doesn't sound too bad. But the thing is, I mean, to go back to the point, I mean, I think that European societies and European governments, etc., actually get this. They do understand the fragility of these systems. COVID was a brilliant wake-up call in the sense it went, oh my God, like, we don't make anything. How, how do we become more resilient, right? And I think that that really shifted a lot of thinking and it shifted a lot of green transition thinking as well. Yeah, but is that, is, is that good enough, though, if, if the US and Russia and China aren't getting it at the same time? Well, the thing is, China is. This is sort of, you know, the, the dirty little secret. Every year, China installs more solar than the rest of the world has. Right, they they have every reason to do this because they're facing what are called wet bulb temperatures in their northern cities, whereby it's thirty five degrees at one hundred percent humidity, and your body can't cool unless you're in air conditioning. So you need more electricity. So you make the problem worse. They're acutely aware of this. Right, they are going to deploy at scale. You might not like them as a regime. You might not want to live there, whatever. But they're taking this stuff very seriously. The EU, the EU's taking this seriously. Uh, the developing world doesn't actually produce that much carbon. It's really a northern problem. So, you know, the outlier on this is the, the the US. The US has done, oddly enough for this program, the IRA, which in this case means the Inflation Recovery Act, which is really bottomless margaritas in terms of tax cuts to buy green, to build green tech. Uh, it, what matters is how much of that gets cemented and how much of that really changes the politics in red states before 2024. Because if you get Trump or DeSantis, they're going to gut all that stuff and we're going to go 100% on a big carbon binge and just go, screw it, we're just going to drill, baby, drill. And that's when the U.S., at that point, in my opinion, if that happens, that's when the EU breaks with the U.S. and never trusts them again. Do you really think that America would elect Trump again? Yeah, absolutely. And that was Mark Blythe. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feed when they're published, or get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear featured. On Twitter, we're at RT Upfront, or send us a WhatsApp message to... 087 677 1000. Talk to you next week.